long for the movie manufacturers to grasp this lesson, so by the time Chaplin was ready to move on to the next logical step, full artistic independence, the balance of power had shifted, and Mutual's days as an ongoing concern were numbered. As for the films, dubbed the Mutual Chaplin Specials by the company that paid so much for them, the story of their survival into the modern era has also never been adequately told in one place. As they passed from owner to owner, losing bits and pieces along the way, even at one point winding up on an auction block, these Chaplin classics, as they were subsequently labeled, managed to avoid consignment to museums and film societies, unlike the early work of other picture-show potentates, such as Mary Pickford and D.W. Griffith, and were continually presented as modern entertainment for the masses. What's more, the masses continually embraced them as such. The Mutual Chaplin specials have been revived almost continuously. They became the first silent comedies reissued during the talkie era with customized soundtracks of music and effects. They were a staple of early network and public television. They were the most sought-after two-reel comedies among 8mm and 16mm film collectors. They are likely the means by which you were first exposed to the comic genius of Charlie Chaplin. They've been restored and re-restored and, yes, re-re-restored. What remains to be said about Chaplin? Any answer is probably debatable, but without doubt there's plenty to say about those who enabled Chaplin to rise to the greatest of heights, of Mutual's founders redefining how films were produced, bought, and sold, of Keystone taking a chance on a young English comedian who was at best a big fish in the smallest of American vaudeville's many ponds, of a craze spreading like wildfire around the world and the opportunists fanning the flames of twelve immortal comedies that would stand the test of a century's worth of time, and the various buyers and sellers keeping them in front of the public. What you will not find in this audiobook are prolonged dissertations of what I think about the films. While no author can be completely objective, wordy critiques by latter-day pundits are a dime a dozen in this Internet age. As it happens, I greatly enjoy all the mutual Chaplin comedies equally. Some are clearly more inspired than others, but even films like The Count, 1916, and Behind the Screen, 1916, which revisit settings and situations from Chaplin's Keystone and SNA canon, contain brilliant touches that are unique and speak to the comedian's growing confidence and skill. Moreover, the mutual comedies defy the ubiquitous big-picture type analysis simply because they're so entertaining. Anyone could point out that Chaplin's skating scenes in The Rink, 1916, were a prelude to the skating scene in modern times. Yet in terms of story construction and certainly sheer laugh value, The Rink is the better film, and the four mutuals that followed are better than The Rink. It's far more insightful to revisit opinions that appeared when the films were new, or repeatedly reintroduced as if they were new. You might also be pleased, as I was, with a small yet fascinating means of sampling how each of the twelve ranked among audiences of the day by virtue of a log, compiled in early 1918, of the number of repeat bookings each title had received at a specific Chicago theater. The title Chaplin's Vintage Year comes from the narration written by Robert Youngson for his 1961 compilation The Days of Thrills and Laughter, which included scenes from two of the mutuals, The Adventurer, 1917, and The Cure, 1917. That film was my introduction to Chaplin when it appeared on TV one Saturday afternoon in the 1960s. Used as an adjective, vintage is defined as characterized by excellence, maturity, and enduring appeal. There's no better way to describe the mutual Chaplin specials. Chapter 1 
the Mutual Film Corporation. At the dawn of 1912, after roughly 15 years of turmoil, the movie industry had finally become orderly and regimented. There were 29 manufacturers producing nearly 4,000 one-and-two-reel films annually for exhibition in America. Around 100 copies of each film were struck and then sold by the manufacturer to exchanges. The exchange man, or renter, paid approximately $100 per reel, 1,000 feet, and in turn rented his films to the exhibitors, each of whom paid a fee varying from $1 to $5 per day per reel, depending on the age of the film. John Collier, then Secretary of the National Board of Censorship of Motion Pictures, described the inner workings of the movie business for the YMCA. The motion picture market is divided between two large groups of manufacturers, the Motion Picture Patents Company and the Motion Picture Distributing and Sales Company. These main manufacturing groups dispose of their products.